today by asking you a rhetorical question. How many of you live by your calendar? And I don't mean use your calendar, pencil things in, but you live by it. Like you wake up in the morning and one of the first things you do is look and see what your day has. Maybe you're someone like me who, uh, if you don't write something down immediately after you get an email or talk to someone, it not only wrecks uh, your day by putting everything behind, but also your spouse's day also. Uh, or maybe you're one of those people who don't live by the calendar, who you're just in joy, you live in the moment, you uh, are free to spontaneously do whatever you want to do. And to all the calendar people, that stresses them out just even thinking about that. But the truth is, most of us live by our calendars. We live by our schedules, our kids' schedules, our uh, friends' schedules, scheduling video, video calls with our families that are in different places. We, even in Abu Dhabi particularly, live in different time zones. So Martin Luther, reformer, has a really great kind of pithy statement that will kind of help us lead into the sermon today. And that statement is, he says, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. So if you open your Bibles or phones to Luke 21, 29, I'd like to pray for us to get us started. Lord, Father, we need to see Jesus today. We need to behold your glory so that we can be transformed into Jesus's likeness. We long to be people who are in the world, but not of the world. Give me your words and strip me of mine. Let us all be empty vessels. Let the Spirit fall with power here today. We also pray for Joe as he preaches later tonight and Ben as he preaches tomorrow morning, Lord. We just pray that your word would go forth. And in Jesus' name, amen. So I want to start kind of with a quick overview before we jump into the passage today of kind of some themes in Luke and then kind of things we've talked about the last two weeks that Pastor Steve's kind of brought the word to us. Because the last two weeks and this week kind of all fit together in one section. So up until Luke 9.51, Luke writes about Jesus' three-year ministry where he traveled from town to town, hearing, loving people, preaching, pouring his life into his disciples. And in Luke 9.51, Luke gives us a big narrative shift from his ministry. And Luke says this in uh, 9.51, he says, When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So there came a moment led by the Spirit that Jesus finished his earthly ministry and he aimed everything to the cross. The days drew near for him to be taken up. He no longer was to roam the countryside. His ministry was named, now aimed at Jerusalem. And today's sermon is in Jerusalem, days before he meets the cross. Everything he says and does is important because it's showing us what he values before his imminent death. Before Jesus fulfills his destiny, he predicts the events that are going to happen. He is a prophet, not like the prophets of old who heard from God and relayed that message to his people. No, he's not a prophet. He's the prophet. Jesus co-authored history. 
He was there with God before the beginning of time, and as the Trinity drew their voices in creation, Jesus knew that to bring God the most glory, time would always move towards the cross on that hill in Jerusalem. And that cross would trigger the end. The cross would begin the consummation of the kingdom of the new heavens and the new earth. So for those of you who like a really clear outline, we're first going to look at a parable and Jesus' explanation of it. Then Jesus is going to make two definitive and prophetic statements. He then gives us two warnings to order our lives by. And then Luke is going to give us two historical facts or statements that conclude this section from Luke 19.28 to now. So the parable, the parable of the fig tree where we start today. Luke 21, 29 through 30. And he told them a parable. Look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that summer is already near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. First, Jesus gives us a parable. Luckily, this one's very simple, and he goes ahead and interprets it for us, which is nice for the disciples and for us. We don't have to figure out what it means. The parable is very simple. Look at a fig tree, one of the most popular trees in Israel, or any other tree, and every winter the leaves die. In the spring, they start to bud, and in summer, they have full leaves. And you know when the leaves are full, it's close to harvest. Farmers don't get fixated on some particular exact day. They just know it's summer. They know that uh, soon they're going to have figs or apples or avocados or my favorite here in the Gulf, mangoes. So also Jesus interprets. When you see these things, you know the kingdom of God is near. The same is true about the second coming of Christ. We don't need to fixate on some exact day, but know that when we see these things take place, we know that the kingdom of God is near. There's a great German theologian in the 1500s, Baumgart, and he says, uh, summertime brings many pleasures just like the kingdom of God. Now, obviously, he lived in Germany and not here, where summertime doesn't, but wintertime does, so you kind of get his point. So we ask the question, first and foremost, what are these things? Jesus says it twice. When these things begin to take place, verse 28, right before, and when you see these things, verse 31, Jesus says it twice, he must be reinforcing the point. What are these things? And on a first reading, it's actually a hard question. On a second reading, it's actually also a hard question. These things in verse 31 can logically be connected with the things in verse 28. So then it refers to the second coming, what Pastor Steve preached about last week. But that reading complicates the next verse. So before we go into what these things are, I want us to kind of pause and look at the main point Jesus is driving home with the parable. When you see a fruit tree and it has no leaves, it's not close to having fruit. When you see a fruit tree and it's green, healthy leaves, summer is here and harvest is near. There's a certainty in the pattern. Jesus wants his disciples to understand that the destruction of the temple and his second coming are written in history. Jesus' face is pointed at Jerusalem. Jesus' face is pointed at the cross, and his kingdom is near. It is not far off. So returning to Luther, I have two days on my calendar, this day and that day. 
Jesus' main point in this parable is you are going to see these things take place and these things are the leaves. When you see these things, they must be reminders that that day is coming. Not just coming, but it's actually near. That day is written in black ink in God's calendar before he ever created the light. So let's jump back two verses and then we'll kind of circle back to the parable. So tracking with our outline... Uh, first the parable, sorry, let's jump into the next two verses, then we'll circle back. First the parable, then Jesus said, uh, sorry, tracking with the outline, first we're going to look at these next two statements, and then we're going to go back to the parable. So these two statements are definitive, they're prophetic, and the second statement kind of reinforces the first one. So verse 32, truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So definitive statement one, verse 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has taken place. So this is where it gets complicated. If we read the parable talking about the second coming, which is its most natural logic, then Jesus is saying that it will happen in the next 30 to 50 years. So we know from history that that's not true. So then definitive statement two, which is reinforcing it, Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Again, it's talking about the second coming. So let's try to kind of untangle the knot. And I'm sorry if this first part's a bit boring, but I promise it'll pick up. So uh, one argument, and my first reaction, was that the first statement could easily be connected to these things in verse 6, reinforcing what Jesus had already said about the destruction of the temple happening in the lifetime. That works from a time standpoint, But it doesn't work because most logically you wouldn't talk about verse 6, then talk about 28, which had to do with the second coming, then jump back to verse 6. Most logically, you would continue on in your train of thought. What makes it a bit more complicated is uh, when you look at the Greek, there's some syntax rules that make translating into English a little complicated based on like the duration of time and indirect uh, verbs. So, Uh, Pastor Steve and I, we met over coffee and and talked about this for a long time to try to figure this kind of complication out. And so what we concluded, that the most natural reading or the natural translation should be something like this. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has begun to take place. So that's a very subtle change, but it fits with the Greek better than it does with the English. This clears up sort of the time incongruencies, and it fits really well when you look into the passage as a whole. So let me read it all together again with kind of this subtle change. So truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has begun to take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So in their lifetime, in this generation, will not pass away until the summer leaves begin to sprout. So let's go back to the parable and kind of look at it all together. Look at the fig tree. When you see leaves, you know summer is here. Verse 31, so also when you see these things taking place, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all has begun to take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. So I've delayed long enough. What are these things? And it's what we've been talking about for the last two weeks. These things are the signs. 
The leaves are the signs. Missing a page. Um, anyways, the leaves are the signs. And, uh, you know, printers do great things, right? It's not your printer. So, uh, the, the leaves are the signs. And as you look at the, the, what we've looked at before, okay? So, what have we talked about the last two weeks? We've talked about the signs are wars. The signs are uh, cosmic sort of things in the sky, cosmic signs that cause uh, disruptions or, or political unrest or civil unrest. So we have signs, we have earthquakes, we have uh, persecution, and then we have the destruction of the temple. So all these things that are taking place are the leaps. It, it, Jesus is saying, so there's going to be lots of things that take place. These signs, these leaves that you're going to see, they let you know that summer is near. And we, one of them is, is the temple, right? That's something we've been talking about for the last two, two weeks and, and now even for a little bit of the third week. And I think what we, we have to do to kind of get ourselves in the mindset is we have to think, okay, we have to think why and how do we put the disciples, like put yourself in the disciples' shoes. What they were taught by their leaders, their, uh, you know, Sadducees, Pharisees, is that when the Messiah was going to come, he was going to bring a political revolution that would overthrow Rome in the same way that Moses came and was going to overthrow, overthrow the Egyptians. So the Messiah, in, a, in many ways, was going to be the new Moses. So the Jews are under the occupation of Rome, and they're praying, okay, when the Messiah comes, he's going to kind of swell up this political power, and he's going to overthrow uh, the Romans. But then Jesus comes, and he has a completely different posture. He's claiming to be the Messiah. He's having power over the waves. He's having power over the winds. And yet, what he's telling them is not that he's going to come in some political power or raise up an army. What he's telling them is what they hold most dear, the temple, will soon be destroyed. And not just destroyed, but flattened. That the people that they are, that they're close to, their friends, their family are going to be killed. There's children that are going to be killed. Their property is going to be looted. Some of them is going to be taken as slaves. So you can see why most of them who didn't have eyes to see rejected Jesus. He was claiming to be the Messiah, but his plan is to let the Romans destroy the most important building a living symbol of their relationship with the one true living God. But they were missing the whole point. Jesus came to offer them his presence and not power. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the true vine. I am the living water that you will no longer thirst. Jesus offers his presence, but the Israelites craved power. If we go backwards past Moses to the beginning... God wanted us to have his presence fully, not hidden behind a curtain, and not where only a few could have access to it. So let's kind of go all the way back to the garden. Look at the garden. God created man and woman in the garden. Man needed no temple. The Lord walked freely in the garden, spoke freely. His presence was so tactile, so physical, that when 
they sinned, they literally immediately went somewhere to hide. You know, a lot of parents, I think, can identify uh, thinking about their kids. When you hear a sound or hear a scream, you don't go to that sound. You go to your kid's favorite hiding spot, right? Ours is behind the couch. So Adam and Eve did sin. The worst curse for Adam and Eve was not uh, the thorns and thistles. It was not the birth pains. The worst curse is that they were kicked out of the presence of the Lord. And then they begin to populate the earth. They were not in God's presence, so they couldn't discern good and evil. Sin ran rampant. Then God was going to lay the earth flat. But instead, he chose Noah to preserve the human race. He saved Noah, but then what happened? His children, Noah's descendants, continued in idolatry. So then he chooses Abraham out of idol worship. He makes a covenant with him that his son's son, Jacob, would be Israel. And through his descendants, the whole world would be blessed. He rescues them from oppression. He gives them the law. He gives them a temple in which his Holy Spirit would dwell, the, a taste and touch of the heaven in which God fully dwells. Yet Israel continues to fall into idolatrous worship. They want to be like the other nations around them. The temple to the Israelites was mercy, but it was limited, it was insufficient, it was only for a few. But then the ultimate act of mercy, God himself, the person of Jesus, comes to earth, his perfect presence with his clear, unmuted voice, but his own people reject him because he didn't look like what they expected. They also rejected Jesus because their idol was power. The temple protectors, which claimed to have the presence of God, crucified his son. The leaders that claimed to worship the one true God and follow his law did not recognize the living law when he taught and walked among them. So when Jesus died on the cross, not for just for their sins, but for our sins, for the sins of the whole world, when Jesus died upon the cross, there was a great earthquake. The veil, the curtain of the temple was ripped in two. So even there, in the crucifixion, we see the first signs that Jesus is talking about that he's prophesying. Uh, Mark and Luke both talk about how the sky darkens in the middle of the day, and Matthew adds that there was this great earthquake. So we're seeing these signs, these initial um, leaves that are, are kind of proving that his kingdom is soon, even in the crucifixion. And on the third day, we know Jesus rose again from the grave. He conquered death. He brought his presence back to earth. After 40 days of revealing himself to many people, he ascended to heaven to sit at the right hand of God in glory, and he poured out his spirit in power as he said he would. So now we're not just adjacent or near his presence, we actually have his presence within us, a part of us. So I want to pause here. Maybe this story is new to you, maybe you've never felt the presence of God, or maybe you don't know the presence of God. Maybe you've desired to have something more than what this world has to offer. So let me be the first to tell you, you can experience the presence of God today by his spirit through Jesus Christ. He took on himself the wrath that we deserved. Today he's saving people from every tongue, tribe, and nation, and he is patiently waiting to return so that more and more and more can hear and his final number is added to. So today, hear the word of the Lord. 
Listen to the drawing of his spirit. See the goodness of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And for the church, no longer is the spirit of God, the presence of God behind a curtain in the temple, but it is now in the hearts of all those who believe in Jesus and submit to the Lord. The new temple is the church of which we are all living stones, 1 Peter 2.5. We collectively make up the presence of God on this earth. We collectively are his physical monument to the lost and dying world. Our sacrifices are pleasing to him, not because of our own merit, but because of the sins, uh, because of Jesus who sits at the right hand of God and took our sins on him. The destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, another sign, was ordained before the beginning of time as a symbolic end as it replaced a new temple, the church of Jesus Christ, which was far more glorious. It is all nations streaming to Zion, beating their weapons of war into plowshares. So look at the fig tree and all the trees. As soon as they come out in leaf, you see for yourself and know that summer is already here. So today, church, I'm delighted to tell you that summer is here, not just the UAE summer. Summer is here. Today, summer is here. We are now living in a time where Jesus has already come, left us his spirit, his presence, but we are waiting with anticipation for his final return when he brings the whole earth low. He floods the whole earth, not with water, but with fire, and then he recreates the new heavens and the new earth of which we are heirs to this new kingdom. Heaven and earth will pass away, it has been declared, but the words, his words will not pass away. He's going before us to prepare a place. His words say that, come to me, little children. His words, his promises say he'll never leave us nor forsake us. So back to Martin Luther, we have two days on our calendar, this day and that day. We as Christians cannot be lulled to sleep. We have leaves and signs in history and signs in this present day. We cannot forget that the day is coming. Our hope is in that day. Our motivation is in that day. But yes, we can see the leaves and know that summer is here. But Jesus hasn't come back yet. We still wake up every day and it's already happened, but it's not yet happened. So what about this day? We know that day is coming. We know that day is on the horizon. But what about this day? So Jesus gives us two warnings to help us live in the present. So Luke 21, 34 through 36. Warning one, watch yourself. But watch yourself, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon you all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. So it's summer. We don't know when Jesus will return, but it's summer. And when he comes, it will be like a sudden trap, kind of like a mouse trap snapping. He reiterates this point in verse 35. Not only will this day come upon those who are in Christ, but it will come on the whole world. Not a person on this earth will know, will not know that Jesus has returned in the clouds. So Jesus warns us to watch ourselves. Jesus highlights two ways that we often get lulled to sleep, two dangers that keep our eyes from looking at our calendars properly, two dangers 
and sins that capture our whole being. So number one, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness. And two, lest your hearts be weighed down by the cares of life. These two sins in some ways are very different. We definitely as a church treat them differently. There are different earthly consequences. But what's really interesting is Jesus sort of pairs these two together. And it brings out this kind of bigger meaning. And the the bigger meaning is, is distraction. There are lots of ways in which we can be distracted. First, dissipation and drunkenness, okay? Dissipation... Uh, most literally, it, it means a hangover. It means you're nauseated from alcohol. It isn't a casual drink or a glass of wine with dinner. This is blackout drunk. And he's not just picking on drinking. He's using this to allude to all forms of unbridled indulgence. To be blackout drunk is to be so focused on our personal pleasures, one loses control. This is extravagant and extensive partying. But it's not just about drinking. His warning has many implications. It can be a frivolous life, a life which every penny we earn is spent on ourselves. It's about orienting our lives around personal pleasure. You can be completely sober, sober and still violate this warning. If all the dirhams you earn and all the time on your calendar is spent focused on the personal pleasures of life, you're being lulled to sleep. You may not be experiencing a physical hangover on Saturday mornings, but you are physically and emotionally asleep to the kingdom of God. And again, I want to be clear. This isn't some kind of moralism. There are many verses about resting from our labor and celebrating life. Much of Jesus' ministry was spent eating at the houses of sinners. This isn't a hard line, but it's about a lifestyle that is obsessive that is obsessed over travel or obsessed over sports or obsessed over drinking good coffee. It's not that the things are bad, but it's the obsession, the the hangover. So number two, second, the cares of life. Another way to say this is the daily monotony. Some translators use the anxieties of life. Previously in Luke 8.13, the parable of the sower and the seeds, the cares of life, the anxieties of life choke out God's word to such an extent that the person becomes unfruitful. Martha is rebuked by Jesus because she was so focused on being hospitable, a great trait, that she failed to sit at the feet of Jesus. This is a completely different sin than blackout drunk, but it has just as dangerous of a relationship, okay, it's even more insidious, right? Because it, we don't always really see how deep the claws can get in us. Those who constantly worry about the day-to-day, whose calendars are filled with 15-minute increments, who constantly read self-help books upon self-help books on productivity. Actually, you don't read them. You don't have to, time to read, so you listen to them at the gym. Those who stress when someone they're meeting is late or traffic because ah, 10 minutes really ruined my day. Those who are too busy to stop and help someone if they have a flat at the mall. Those who are too busy to see the friend across the table and that their marriage is is wrecked. Those who are too busy to read the word of God. Those who are too busy to obey it. Those who have no time 
built in for home groups, those who have no time built in to serve the church, those who have no time built in that if you met someone that wanted to know about Jesus, you couldn't even tell them, let alone walk with them or disciple them. It's not obvious, but the cares of life is just as dangerous and as sinful as drunkenness. It chokes out the word of God and it makes us unfruitful. Both of these dangers weigh our hearts down. They burden us. They make our hearts unresponsive. They numb us to God's spirit and how he's working in this world. And it's the same word and the same idea that's used of Pharaoh, the hardening of the heart. So Moses comes to Pharaoh and says, let my people go or else disaster is going to come upon you. And his heart is hardened. It's the same idea. Both of these sins harden our heart in the same way that it does to Pharaoh. So watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of life, and that day will come upon you suddenly like a trap. Warning number two, stay awake. Verse 36. But stay awake at all times, praying that you might have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place, to stand before the Son of Man. But stay awake. Obviously, this isn't a call to insomnia, not a call to ignore our bodies the way they were designed to sleep. No, stay awake is militant language. It's a warning to the guards of the city to be watchful, to not fall asleep while on duty, while guarding people. Another way to say stay awake is to continuously be prepared. And as Paul says to Timothy, be prepared in season and out of season. Being prepared means two things in the passage. It means to pray and it means to persevere. So number one, pray. Stay awake at all times praying. All through Luke and Acts, prayer is a central theme. Our prayer lives are direct indicators of our faith. How much we pray and depend on God is directly related to how much faith we have in him. In Luke's mind, prayer is the opposite of losing heart. So you're either praying or you're losing heart. This is also Luke's way of emphasizing the daily disciplines in the lives of believers in regards to discipleship. Prayer is an indicator of your daily disciplines. For time's sake, I, I won't preach another sermon, but Paul fleshes this out very clearly in Ephesians 6, 10 through 20. Be strong in the Lord and the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, praying at all times, persevering, Paul connects prayer with the spiritual battle we're fighting against sin and against the kingdom of Satan that seeks to halt the kingdom of God at every turn. Being prepared means two things in the passage, to pray and number two, to persevere. Persevere. Stay awake at all times, praying that you may have the strength to escape all these things. So on this day, so that you can stand before God on that day, the signs are here. The leaves are here. Summer is here. Tribulation has come and will continue to come until Jesus returns. There will be earthquakes. There, the church will be persecuted. There will be the cost of taking the gospel to all these unreached people groups all the way to the ends of the earth. God writes the history. The delay of his second coming is incorporated into his timeline so that more and more and more and more people will come to know him. We cannot live just a business-as-usual orientation to life. God has not given us a blueprint for the future. He calls us 
to daily taking our cross and following Jesus. Perseverance, fighting the good fight, sharing in the sufferings of Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. Paul ends his final letter to Timothy as he sets in prison, full of joy, because he persevered. He fought the good fight. He made it to the end. He had all the confidence that he was going to stand before the living God in glory. Not because of his works. No, he makes that very clear throughout all of his letters, that it's God who keeps, God who holds, the Spirit who seals. It's God who allows us to persevere. But we are not robots. We have free will. We still have to get up each day and count the cost and choose to take up our cross. And I promise you, church, at the end of your life, you are not going to ask yourselves, did I stick to my calendar? Did I really get, accomplish everything, squeeze it in such a way that I got everything out of my day, all these little monotonous things? Or... Did I party enough? I don't know. Maybe I should have done that more. No, at the end of our time, when we're standing before the Savior, and we're coming face to face with Jesus, the only thing we are going to be thinking about is, did we persevere? So let's conclude with two historical verses and make a few applications. Verse 37. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. And early in the morning, all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. Jesus modeled everything for us he taught. Early in the morning, he labored towards the kingdom of God. In the evening, he got away uh, to a quiet place to pray and to rest. This was his last few moments he had under the stars that he made. And he was praying and teaching. Jesus models for us daily discipleship. And also, I think it's important to mention, mercifully, he taught in the temple every day. He gave Israel a chance before he brought destruction. It's the same way we want to go to the ends of the earth and give all these unreached people groups that have never heard the name of Jesus a chance before Jesus returns. So how do we apply all this today? Number one, Prioritize today. Care about today. But in light of that day. So prioritize today in light of that day. This isn't like carpe diem or seize the day. If we only live this in this day, if we only live today in the present, we've missed the point. We have to prioritize this day in light of that day. Jesus does not give us any indication that we should try to figure out the future. In fact, his warnings are the opposite. His warnings are not for the future, therefore, today. Now, the present. Two days, this day and that day. And we know that that day is coming, so we need to focus on this day. And watch out for these two dangers, right, that lull us to sleep and steal our days. Unbridled indulgence. A calendar so filled with self that there's no room for anything else, anyone else, and definitely not for the kingdom of God. Or these daily monotonies, a calendar so filled with accomplishment and productivity and personal kingdom building, it chokes out our fruitfulness to God. Ultimately, both of these steal our joy. We think 
grand indulgence will bring us joy, but it just leaves us empty. Look around the city we live in. And we think accomplishment will bring us joy, but it leaves us empty. Both leave us craving more and more and will never be satisfied. Only Jesus can satisfy us. And it is by taking up our cross daily and following him in discipleship that we see that his yoke is light. His yoke is far lighter than all these other things. Number two, stay awake to the spiritual battle all around us. The battle we fight against sin and against the schemes of the enemy that slow the church, one watches by praying and persevering. There will be tribulation. It it is certain. The leaves are, are, are full. There will be tribulation. There will be persecution. There will be more cosmic natural disasters. We pray intelligently. We pray diligently. We pray at all times. We watch the news and pray. I think this is a really good exercise. If, if you struggle with knowing kind of what to pray for, open a newspaper. There is tons of things to pray for. Every time you see another story about another earthquake or a tsunami, Uh, or the war in Ukraine, or in Afghanistan. These are all birth pains. Christ is near. Persistent prayer is critical. For if we cannot face our trials or overcome the world's temptation without the empowering presence, the help of Jesus through the Spirit, we are not strong enough ourselves. Jesus is at the end of his life, and every day he's rising early, He's teaching in the temple, and then he's getting by himself to rest and pray. That's how Judas knew where he was going to be. He knew he was going to be in the temple praying because he did it every single night. He went there and he rested and he prayed. He knew he was going to be in the garden. If Jesus is always praying, how much more do we need to pray? We cannot live a business-as-usual orientation to life. We must keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Number three, don't make the same mistakes the Pharisees did. They had an idea of Jesus, of what he should be, and he didn't come as they expected. And often, uh, we don't, you know, decide as much as we want to. We don't always decide what Jesus' word says or, or does or how he acts towards others. We don't get to decide. The word is our authority. Jesus' life and the way he lived in the church and the direction of the church has many implications, but we obey the word. We don't get to decide. The gospel proclaims that there is a sure hope for the future, and that hope isn't grounded in past philosophies, logic, or intuition. That hope is in Jesus. Number four, if you are in Christ, do not fear his return, but look forward to it with joy. Remember the gospel. Remember his promises. You will not be judged how the religions of the world tell us based on the sum total of all of our decisions, right or wrong. That's not how it works for Christians. That's how it's told that it works for Islam or for Buddhism or for Sikhs. Even among atheists, they have their own sort of moral code. As Christians, we know that we could never do enough to outweigh all the bad, 
We could never do enough. But when God looks at us, he doesn't see a scorecard. He sees Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of God. And as we walk up to his throne, we will throw ourselves at his feet in worship because Jesus says him, her, her name's written in the book of life. She has my righteousness. He has my righteousness. And that's the purpose of the Lord's Supper. This is the reason once a month we take the elements, the bread and the fruit of the vine together. Today we're looking forward to that day in joy. So if you turn to 1 Corinthians,